Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today, I've invited author Gwendolyn Keist to talk about her book, Reluctant Immortals, her novel that blends Jane Eyre and Dracula for a hippie feminist story about reclaiming autonomy from the men who stole it. This was such a creative, moving, and fun read, and I cannot recommend it enough. You can order your copy of Reluctant Immortals using my bookshop.org link to support the show, as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following she wore black on Twitter and Instagram and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Now onto the show. Right. Well, Gwendolyn, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Listeners, we are wearing matching flowers in our hair for this theme today. <laughs> um, for those who haven't read the book, I had the great privilege of being able to read it before the show. Can you give our listeners a description of Reluctant Immortals? Yes. So Reluctant Immortals is the story of two forgotten gothic heroines from classic gothic literature, Lucy Westenra from Dracula and Bertha Antoinetta Mason from Jane Eyre, the so-called mad woman in the attic. And they are living as the reluctant immortals of the title in 1960s California. And when the two men from their past, Dracula and Edward Rochester, make a very sudden return to their lives. And it's so rude. They can't just leave them alone. Yeah, right. That's all. That's all they want. They're just like, we just want to move on with our undead lives. But nope, nope. Dracula and Rochester won't let them. So it's that ego they can't let go of. I think they need that admiration or Mm -hmm. the control. They need that control in their lives. Yeah. Well, there's so many layers to this book and several directions we can go in this conversation. There's setting, there's main characters that you specifically chose from literature. There's the ash urns. Um, So some of these topics will obviously be harder to talk about on some level, but I don't think there's any way really to retell a female-centered story that has like class characters from classics without addressing these themes. I also would say that addressing these themes from uh, female autonomy are the reason other authors retell these stories in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so was the objective for you about the issues and you use these characters or these stories as like a way to tell that, or was it just inevitable byproduct of exploring these classic stories? Oh, I like that. I feel like it was both at the same time. I never really thought about it as being distinct, but I I like that. Yeah, because you're right. Like there's no way really of being able to take these characters. I mean, I guess you could. I I mean, theoretically, I suppose you could, but like I wouldn't find that interesting as a reader or as a storyteller. I feel like if you're reclaiming these lost voices by the act of reclaiming them, you're saying something about the fact that they were deleted in the first place. And so I I think it was just really entwined because I I always was sad that Lucy and Bertha didn't get more of a voice when I was younger. And I I thought about it over the years so many times. And so when I decided to put them together as these kind of unlikely friends, it just, it was very much the natural extension of of their story is, is to have it be, you know, their 
reclaiming who they are. They're trying to find that lost narrative that, that these men have you know, usurped who they were and trying to find that way of being able to say, no, I'm still here and I deserve a voice. So, yeah. So there's, as you know, a bazillion options that we could, you could have picked, you know, to do a retelling of. There's so many women that have had to deal with misogynistic stories in classic literature. So why these two particular characters? You know, part of it is just that, you know, they were two that I always loved. And I came to Dracula very young. You know, I was probably five years old. And I always, you know, there's only really the two female characters in it. There's Mina and there's Lucy. And, you know, Mina gets the happier ending, certainly, and Lucy does not. And it was always this desire for me to be like, I want Lucy to have a happy ending. I want it, I want it to be better than what she gets, you know? And they they turn her into such a terrible character. Like in the original book, she's like attacking kids, right? Like they make her as bad as possible. And like, I address that in Reluctant Immortals that it's just like rumors that basically, and, and I, to me, that seems so interesting because I feel like as women, there often are men who start rumors about women or even other women, sadly, who start rumors. And it's like, that's a thing that women understand that you you may not have done anything, but somebody will start that rumor to try to ruin your reputation. I thought, what if that's what happened with Lucy? What if she just came back as a vampire and was like, listen, I'm, I don't even want to be a vampire, but they're like, oh, we have to kill you. And we have to invent a reason why we have to kill you. So obviously you're the worst person ever. You went after kids. So it's like, you know, thinking about that and thinking about that way of, of being able to reclaim her narrative in particular. And it just always, Dracula is such a familiar story. And I felt like, you know, she's a character that doesn't really get her due. You, you don't see in most of the adaptations, people talking about Lucy. And then really the same thing with Bertha and Jane Eyre, she gets even less of a time in the book or in any of the film adaptations. So yeah, it just seemed like, like you said, there's lots of other characters you could of course do this with, but those were just two that had always resonated with me so much. And I just, you know, I really just wanted to see what they would be doing and how they would get along and, you know, what stories they would, what, you know, what stories they would share with what happened to them. You just said something that's really interesting and I'm making a note because I don't want to miss this. So I'm going to interrupt my questions to ask this one now, based on whatever you just said, which was um, that we almost never hear like Bertha's name, but we do know it, um, yeah. which is interesting because all of this kind of misogyny through the classics takes so many different forms. Like with Rebecca, the main character is not even named, but mm -hmm. it's interesting that you said that about Bertha, because while we do know her name, what the bigger takeaway of her has been is the mad woman in the attic has yeah. become a part of our collective unconscious at this point mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it permeates everything. And, you know, yeah. I definitely have questions that get to that, but the, what you just said is so true. Like, I, I bet there's a lot of people who did, who didn't know her name, but knew the mad woman in the attic. Yeah. I feel like that. I feel like that more so than even maybe like, I think a lot of people know Jane Eyre, but I think there's people who know of this mad woman in the attic idea, but don't know, like may not even know that it came out of Jane Eyre, you know, yes. or, yes. you know, or even if you do, that's all you know about it. And you certainly don't remember anything about Bertha at all like she has so little in her life in Jane Eyre Lucy at least in Dracula gets a little bit more we have a we have some letters we have some people talking about her more and she is 
she is more centered in the narrative of Dracula because they are trying to save her. They fail miserably at it. And I always say, you know, they do that blood transfusion. I'm like, they didn't even check everybody's blood type. That could have killed Lucy more so than the vampirism. They had no idea what they were doing in Dracula. But at least they're trying in, in Dracula to save Lucy, whereas Bertha is just an obstacle in Jane Eyre. She's not given any in her life. And, and it's very... Yeah, it's, her narrative is much sadder and much scarier to me than even what happens to Lucy in a lot of ways in Dracula, even though obviously that's sad and scary too. But I think also because at least in Dracula, it's supernatural. So yes. there's some comfort we can take, whereas Jane Eyre, what happens to her could happen to somebody. Like that is, it's not, that part of it is not supernatural. So and happened through history. And yeah. when you're a woman of color, there's mm -hmm. a whole like other level of- yes you know, reading Bertha that we experience, uh -huh. like I'm a Latina, you know, I, and, you know, definitely a product of colonialism and everything. Mm -hmm. And, and so like our conversation around Bertha is, is a next, it has another level, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's often even deleted about her. And there's some people who are like, oh no, she's not actually biracial. You know, there's even people who like kind of, but the suggestion is yeah. really very much that she is like that really, that really is very much what the illusion is repeatedly. I mean, you know, he, Rochester even calls her mother, the Creole in this way that is just so offensive. Like, and it's like, so in this very racist way of saying it. So it's like, the suggestion is very, very much that she's biracial. And that does often get deleted in, in the stories about even the, you know, the films are almost always white women playing the, the characters. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's a huge component of, I, I always took it as a huge component as to why he put her in the attic. Like that was part yes. of it, that, that he, that it's not so much that she's crazy quote unquote but also that he didn't maybe realize oh I, I'm married to someone biracial this isn't what I want and wow there's yeah like it when I first saw the film when I was young I didn't know any of that you don't even see Bertha right. the, the, the actress playing her I you know she's just like a shadowy figure I saw the Orson Welles Joan Fontaine version and so it was like I had no idea that was even a part of the narrative till I got much older and, and read it and then I was like whoa this is this is very different than how I took it. Not that you should put someone who's mentally ill in an attic either. Even if that was the sole right. thing, it's not okay. But there are definitely, like you said, layers of colonialism and a lot more going on in the narrative of Jane Eyre that it's like, you know, I thought, I, I did think Jane Eyre was romantic when I was very young. And like, yeah. I still I still love it. I do. Like, I wouldn't have spent this much time with it if I didn't. But the problematic elements are definitely there. And I think a lot of people don't want to deal with it because it's like, you know, this classic literature favorite and it's like it's it's i mean yeah i think we should you know constantly evolve i know people are mm -hmm. finally coming around to acknowledging like the problematic elements of to kill a mockingbird and yeah. you know and it, and but people make these things in in very difficult strides like they still don't want to hear a word i have to say regarding like gone with the wind <laughs> You know, with the window is so problematic. It's like it's worst. always been problematic. But they love it because of big dresses. Like, you know, that's all yeah. it takes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, for me, one of the things I try to always think of is like, you can still love something and say it's problematic. Yes. I don't feel yes. that they're mutually exclusive. Like, you know, it, it's not quite as problematic as going with the wind, but I love the book, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. I love it by Shirley Jackson. 
they are so classist in it. It is a very classist book that they consider that they are better because they come from money and the townspeople are poor and they are terrible people because of it is very much the, the what is being said with it. I still love the book, but I think there's a lot to be said for grappling with the problematic elements of things. It doesn't mean like, I also think some readers think if they like something that's problematic, it makes them a bad person. Right. And so they feel like they're almost defending themselves, but it's like, you can like something that's problematic, like, and everything has problematic elements. Some things much more so like gone with the wind, but like everything has, you know, aspects of it that are problematic. And to me, it's like grappling with that can like, I don't know, enrich conversation about literature and how we can do better, like how we should all be trying to do better. I think like, you know, I'm sure in 10 years, I'll go back to some of my own work and be like, oh, I would never right. write that now. I would never write that now because I realize like, this is not, this, this is how it would come across. And that's not what I want. And it's like, it should be a continuing evolution for all of us to be like, hey, we can just be better and do write better literature. Isn't that a good thing? That is a thousand percent true. And I wish more people understood that like as they go along it's okay to kind of reflect I mean there's things that I wrote like even like one line in an essay that I had published you know 10 years ago I would never write that line now mm -hmm. you know referring to like raunchy romance novels like I would never say that now even though the point wasn't about romance it was about racism but it was you know still like um basically white women were allowed to read what they wanted and I wasn't um mm -hmm. I always had to read like classic stuff in order to be taken seriously by my teachers. And, and that's a whole story I think I've, I've discussed on the podcast before, but that was the context. But I look back on that line now and cringe, you know, like I hate that, you know, we should all be able to, to, to move forward and, and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I also love that this week there's been the conversation about like student loan forgiveness and mm -hmm. well, you should be, you know, getting into degrees that aren't going to make you money, which is a bullshit, bullshit wow. response that I see a lot. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, these kinds of conversations that you and I are having right now are the sort of conversations you have when you do study the arts, like literature, art history, mm -hmm. and everything. And it gives mm -hmm. you context for evaluating your life that you're living right now and the politics that you're living right now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, that's a terrible mentality. I'm like, oh, you're not gonna make any money with that degree. So what, we should just eliminate whole sections of like like scholarship and, and society because, oh, it doesn't make money. Maybe not everything needs to make money. Like maybe that's the underlying problem, everybody. Like I'm, right. yeah, capitalism. Oh, uh, it's good times, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. boy. Well, so this next one was really interesting to me. This next thing I want to talk to you about because Jane Eyre and Dracula have been the subject of previous retellings on my podcast in my episode with Mimi Matthews discussing her book, John Eyre. I'm not sure if you've read it, but she no. also combines Jane Eyre and Dracula. And no that, way. Yes. Seriously. I did not know this. What okay. is it called? John Eyre. I do not she know flips this. it where John comes, but he, she has this sort of Ichabod Crane thing going on with hers as far as like, he comes in as a tutor um, okay. for these twins and she could, but she does combine Dracula and Jane Eyre for this story. There, there is definitely the vampiric element and everything as well. Okay. Um, but it's interesting because she combines it in a way that's very much in her voice. 
mm-hmm. and it's very Victorian Gothic, um, mm-hmm. like setting. And, you know, I just love that this sort of speaks to how these works translate to different people. And, you know, y'all are writing about them in both vastly different ways, but also kind of tackling a lot of the same things, but that, you know, your voices are so different, but they, I was like, I wish she came out with that book. I was like, whoa, how do you even approach this idea of blending them? And then you came along at like a year later, maybe two years later. And great. I did not know this. I cannot wait to look this up. This is so exciting. It's funny because Mimi Matthews is usually known for her historical romance um, and she writes closed door romance. So, you know, some of her readers were very not prepared (laughs) for a very gothic novel. I mean, it opens right by a, what is it called? A grave. It's gravesite. And so like, cause there's a death and all this, I mean, and it's just creepy. There's creepy kids, the whole thing. It's fascinating. <laughs> creepy kids are like my, uh, like the worst for me, as far as what I can handle. In <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, I just thought it was fascinating that, you know, people can interpret these things, um, differently and write about them differently. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I love works that are in public domain, like whether it's, you know, classic literature or fairy tales or folklore, because I think that, you know, this is all part of our history and part of this kind of like tradition of storytelling. And we can take things that are familiar and then kind of make them unfamiliar again by by retelling them. And I just I I love retelling so much. So like, thank you for telling me about this. I can't believe I didn't hear about it. I'm so excited now. And she's one of my earliest podcast interviews and I love her interview. She's just such a a cool person. I really adored her. So go back and listen to that if you get a chance. Well, um, kind of going back to Jane Eyre retellings, the most famous is Wide Saragosso Sea. Mm -hmm. Um, But particularly in the wake of Me Too, um, you know, there's been more. I did mention Mimi's book. Um, you know, which also combines Dracula, which is just wild that y'all did that. Um, but you know, Rachel Hawkins wrote The Wife Upstairs, Rose Lerner wrote Wife in the Attic, and there's been so many. I mean, the, there's mm-hmm. a long list. But women writers often revisit or visit the Mad Woman in the Attic idea because our autonomy is always threatened. Which trials? I mean, that's kind of what was going on here uh, with Bertha. Britney Spears did not even happen in a vacuum. You know, a lot of us were kind of like, what's going on? But when that happened, we found out there's other child, like female child actors who are also living under the same conditions. And, you know, with on the border, whenever they were, you know, during the Trump administration, there was all those caging of, of women, they were doing forced hysterectomies. That was very, very real. And they didn't even know it was happening until they woke up. Recent Supreme Court case, you know, like we all, there's just so many different ways. Britney Spears spoke to modern legal threats against us, but then there's also like, oh, she's hysterical or gaslighting about women's behavior, you know, whether it's Amber Heard or even something like Catherine Heigl going, hey guys, maybe we should have safe working conditions on set. Like every, you know, but she's going to get blacklisted for that. So like every turn, there's like a different way to make Mad Women in the Attic happen. Yes. It's, it's so true. And that, that's such an interesting way of thinking about it too, that it's not necessarily always you're locked in an attic. There's just all of these different like levels of how this can happen from, like you said, like, I remember when that all happened with Catherine Hegel, like what, like 15 years ago or something now, but like, 
it's so tame really it was just like hey could this be a little bit better or hey this is a little bit sexist and it's like oh you're just so ungrateful and that's a big thing for women like we're expected to be grateful for everything like oh you should just be grateful you're even getting a seat at the table and you better just sit there and shut up because nobody wants to hear you and it's like wow this is not yeah you're right though it's just like there's different ways of 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 shutting women up it's not always the the actual physical addict but it's just the the addicts we create for our you know for ourselves and for our society and it's terrifying it's really scary just the expectations that it's like be quiet don't say anything you know or wow you should just be grateful that you're here and it's like things are never going to get any better for anybody with that mentality you know it's like yeah yeah, very frustrating. Yeah, and it's funny because you don't see retellings in the same way over Dickensian stories. You know, it's all we it's because and it's because we have these in, like intrinsic truths we need to tell mm-hmm. that have always been there and are still there. Yes. So we've yeah. talked a lot about themes. I need to talk about some details like those crazy urns. <laughs> <laughs> I was just fascinated with those are they um maybe did you have a reference that was historical or based in folklore for those as a way to maybe manage a cursed or vampiric body quote unquote you know that kind of thing was there a historical reference for this because it was just such a creative thing to do no I don't think that there really necessarily was other than you know we put you know ashes when people are cremated in an urn and so And then I thought about how in so many of the retellings of Dracula, something always happens and and the urn gets broken or or it gets let out. So I thought Lucy's had all this time that she might figure out like, oh, if it's just one urn, he's going to escape. So she separates his ashes into four different urns because then it's like, okay, now he's separated. He won't be as powerful. But then throughout the story, the urns keep trying to work their way back together. And they're like each sentient and they're all like a kind of different component of Dracula's personality. So there's like the really nasty, vicious urn that's physically hot when you touch it. And then there's kind of like the brooding urn that's more quiet. And so it's like each one sort of has its own as its own aspects of of his personality so that as he kind of comes back together you know you have you have uh his whole his whole personality but I just I love the idea of how the you know Dracula's always brought back that's how it always works in any of the retellings and the sequels so I'm like okay like let's say Lucy anticipates that let's say she knows that's gonna happen and she's trying to fight back against that and and just like you know Plus, it just seemed like really fun to have these like angry little urns. Like it was like a fun, <laughs> campy kind of thing that I could imagine in a Hammer movie. And that was like, you know, I love Hammer films. That's when I really first connected with Dracula. So I'm like, okay, I could totally see Hammer movies having like these urns around because they always had great like set pieces and great like design. So I'm like, okay, like I could see this working in a Hammer movie. So that was really, that was. <laughs> it gave me a giggle. I mean, I had a good time with those. Yeah. Yeah. Also, my husband is a potter. He does pottery. So he actually made me some Dracula urns. I need to take a picture of them and put them online because I totally had these, like they actually sat next to my desk and I had a little Dracula urn that like I looked at. It was great. Like he actually made me several prototypes so I could pick my favorite Dracula urns. So that was like my little urn sitting next to my desk while I was writing. Oh my gosh. You need to like use one for like have him make one so that you could do a giveaway or something. I know that's actually what I 
what I thought. I'm like, when it, like, as I was writing, like, if people like this, maybe we can do like a giveaway. Here's a, here's a Dracula urn and a signed book. There is nothing more that we like than stuff to go with our books. Like, and there's one that I will always regret never taking, but, um, I was in college when Coraline came out, um, from Neil Gaiman and here at book people, this is the only place I saw it because I bought my copy at, um, the bookstore across, I was at UT, um, at the university of Texas. And there was a bookstore across the street where I bought my copy. And then I popped over to book people, which I should have done in the first place because they have everything on the planet <laughs> but they had and they only had one left but I didn't want to take it from a like a child who would purchase the book so I left it there <laughs> but I was like I've never stopped thinking about these it was a little bag I don't know if you remember in Coraline but the the spirits of the three children were like little marbles mm. so it was a little Coraline bag of the three marbles I know. And they were gorgeous. And I'm like, shit, I want those. <laughs> and I've never stopped thinking about them. And I'm like, you need this urn to be out in the world. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I thought the same thing. Like, oh, I should leave that for a little kid. But you know, when you're a little kid, you don't appreciate things as much. I so know. if they did go to a little kid, they've probably forgotten about it, but you kept remembering it. Sometimes as adults, we need these things too. <laughs> Yeah, I need to hunt those down now. I hope I haven't like jacked everybody over at eBay, like out of their, <laughs> oh no, everyone knows. Let's all go bid on those. Um, but yeah, I just, so yeah, he needs to make some, some urns to put out in the world for people like us that are big groupies for your book. So <laughs> the other thing I thought was really fascinating was the decay. And I thought that the way they tried to clean the decay that they knew was going to return every day was a really strong way to speak about navigating trauma. One of the things that I've always loved about vampires are they live in these old decrepit castles. And, you know, the idea, I, I assume the suggestion is just that they've been around for so long and it just decays around them. But like, I thought, what if they can't escape it? What if this decay is just something that attracts to them because they're dead? And so Lucy and B, that's what she goes by in Reluctant Immortals Bertha, live in this old house. And every single day, the decay from the fact that Lucy is a dead vampire just like like starts forming all over the house. So there's cobwebs, there's dust, there's cracks in the, in the ceiling. And she and B are every single day, it's this routine they have. And they go around the house trying to clean it up, trying to kind of push it away. And yeah, to me, it, it is like one of the things I love so much about the Gothic, and I love a lot about the Gothic, but it's how it makes so many things of the past and trauma literal. It makes it literal. The, the houses where terrible things happen are falling apart. They're, they're, they are decaying because that's what it feels like when you experience trauma. And so to have this, like their entire lives up until the, really the beginning of the book is them constantly trying to fight back, you know, trying to not deal really with the trauma. It's, you know, they they want to push it away. They don't want to deal with it. Yes, they've got the urns right there, but Dracula's, you know, not there. Edward Rochester's not there. They're really trying to hide. And, you know, trying to constantly clean up this decay is their way of saying, I'm going to just push it away. I'm going to push away this trauma. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to just try to literally like it's like you're pushing it under you know the bed or whatever like trying to just get it away without actually dealing with you know the source of it and what's what's going on so yeah that that absolutely like like I said I love that about the gothic of how everything is so literal and so that was just like a a way of being able to explore that 
So creative. And that's what I love about this book is like every single turn, there was something interesting, creative, like you brought in the drive-in movie theater, you just draw, you brought in like, even just the setting was just this really cool. I wanted to speak to that too, in the context of this other weird random thing, which I'm not sure if anybody else in is that interviews, you will mention this, but I also thought of Evelyn Hugo. Did you read The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo? I haven't. I haven't. No, I haven't yet. Her starts earlier in old Hollywood, but it goes through to like the 80s. Um, okay. and, and actually even now, like she lives, I think, into the 2000s. I forget how far, but, um, but you know, you kind of attack different decades of her life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this incredible old Hollywood story that also spoke to women's historical repression. But you also used Hollywood and chose a time when women's civil rights was a big movement. Evelyn and Lucy could have crossed paths. And I thought about that a lot because they're very different stories that speak to the same truths using the same settings. Yeah. So yeah. I just thought that was fascinating. You know, it's so interesting that you bring that up. I, I'd, I'd seen like the cover of the book. I didn't know anything about what it was about, but I happened to come across like just like six months ago, fan art for it. And I'm like, what is this? And so I looked into it and I'm like, wow. And I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but yes, it does sound like, you know, there is, and, and it's, it's a, there's a queer love story in it yes. too, correct? Yes. And so yes. there is in Reluctant Immortals as well. So I felt like that was like a really interesting kind of symmetry there so yeah I I do want to read it I need to read it it's I, I yeah like once I'd heard good things about it but nothing specific about the plot I had no idea it had to do with old Hollywood and then like once I read I don't know what I thought based on the cover I thought something else I don't know but like once I was like ooh, old Hollywood I like of course that was that. me too I saw the cover yeah. and just kind of had oh it's historical fiction which I love historical fiction yeah I'm a mood reader and then but I didn't realize it was old Hollywood and uh-huh. I was like, oh my gosh that's what it took for me yeah. to pick it up and then it was just the best time it was <laughs> it was such a good time and I I don't know how many different times I thought about it like while I was reading this going she could have crossed paths with Lucy. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. yeah, no, it's kind of wild. I mean, they, they come from very different parts at that point of the story, you know, but you just yeah. never know who you run into, you know, especially whenever they were going to some of like the ritzier parts of like near San Francisco and stuff. Mm-hmm. By the way, I went to elementary, I started elementary school over there. I went to kindergarten when we were still living in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was like, I had all our, our, our old pictures, like old family pictures, like in my brain while I was, cause it was the seventies. So we came back yeah. right before 1980. So okay. I'm old. <laughs> I am firmly in Gen X. So. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, what, is there anything that you want your readers to know that maybe you haven't been asked? Oh my gosh. Nobody has asked about the wolves. Nobody's asked about the wolves. And I love the right. wolves. Like they're just like a supporting character, but I love them. And what's so funny is like when I'm, after I'm like done with a draft, I really like put it out of my mind. So like I would send the, you know, I would send it to my editor and then I would stop thinking about the book. And I think that's a good way of doing it because when you come back, you're fresh. And then every single time I was like a little kid, I'd get to the part with the wolves. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the wolves are here. And I'm like, Gwendolyn, you wrote them. But I would literally get excited every time. And nobody's asked me about the wolves, I don't think so. Well, do you want to tell us more about them? 
Yeah, like, uh, I mean, it might be a little bit of a spoiler, but that's, that, that's fine. There are wolves, Dracula's wolves show up in this and they are like, they're not huge characters, but they show up throughout the, throughout the book. And I was just very excited because they're like, <laughs> they're almost like the velociraptors in the new Jurassic Park. Like, they're like, you know, you can kind of talk to them and communicate with them a little bit. And like, I was just really excited because I like love animals way too much. And I, I would totally want to, if I was a vampire, I feel like the wolves would be like one of the best parts is if you had wolves hanging out that you could like talk to and stuff. So yeah, I don't, honestly, like there's a lot of this book that I, like we talk about the decay as being, you know, symbolic of, of trauma. Like the wolves are just because it's fun. Like I, I suppose there could be like, but when I was building the symbolism, I'm just like, yay wolves. So it's not like anything deep. That's probably why nobody asked me about it. Well, I'm like, the urns were fun too. Like the urns made me laugh because yeah. they did have personalities. And I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm sad. I didn't ask about the wolves too. Cause I was like, I want, I want to talk about some of these like funnier things because I did, we, we were talking about these heavy themes. I yeah. wept, you know, the whole yeah. thing but there yeah. are some really fun things yeah. that are reflective of the fun cover too and and old hollywood is one of those things because mm -hmm. it is like you know it is something that wasn't always glamorous you yes. know and mm -hmm. i also thought of like like vampira and like yes. some of these kind of mm -hmm. kitschy old hollywood things that were maybe mm -hmm. universal monster related in some way yes. anyway it just it, there was just so much like fun with the setting just the setting yeah, I tried to have fun with it. Like I said, I, I love Hammer movies. And so it's like, they they are so visually fun to, to you know, watch. And so that was definitely something I, I was I was thinking of as, as I was watching. And back to the wolves quickly. One of my favorite things when I was like, you know, cause I tried to watch a lot of the Dracula adaptations as I was, you know, just to get a feel like, what do I like? What do I not like? One of the things that was hilarious is there's more than one film adaptation where I, they clearly couldn't get a bunch of wolves. So they got a bunch of German shepherds and it was the greatest thing oh because they like, you would have this like pack of German shepherds that were obviously very, very friendly. And they're like making them run in some of these. Like I think the Jack Palance version opens with these like German shepherds running. And there's another version that have like German shepherds and it's just the best. And like what they would do the one German shepherd, like they would like back comb them. So they would look scrubby, like, look, it's a scrubby wolf. Like, no, it's just a scrubby German shepherd. So that was like one of my favorite things. So like, I don't know. So if when people are reading, they just want to imagine scrubby German shepherds. I'm good with that too. Because that, That's clearly got precedent in Dracula movies. And just the mention of Jack Palance kind of brought a smile to my face going, oh goodness, I haven't heard that name in a long time. No, right? <laughs> I had never seen that version of, of Dracula. I think it's by the same person who did Dark Shadows. So it had a very kind of Dark Shadows soap opera feel. I'm pretty sure. I think it was. And so it was like, yeah, it was it was a fun one. I, I like pretty much all of them. There's not very many Dracula adaptations. And I'm like, that's just terrible. Don't watch that. I think they're all fun in their own way, even if they're kind of terrible. So it's like, I just think it's a good time. But yeah, scruffy German Shepherds is the best. <laughs> that I love now that brings, I wish I knew that before, you know what I mean? Like I'm jealous of everyone who's going to go buy the book now and then read that because they get to see that and like, hear you laughing and, <laughs> and how much fun that was for you as they're reading. <laughs> it was the, the wolves were definitely fun. <laughs>
Well, the last question I have is going to be Winona related um, because, you know, Winona writer is also a goth queen, right? So, <laughs> but I'm sure you've seen the quote going around where she talks about making Dracula, where um, do you, I think you know where I'm going by that. I think so, but I'm going to listen. <laughs> where Francis Ford Coppola wanted people to, like the men to gather around her and say terrible, horrible things to her mm-hmm. to make her cry. And like Kiana refused to do it. And I'm like, of course, of course, Kiana refused. And um, also Anthony Hopkins, I think, refused. And I just thought that that spoke a lot to the things that you were writing about in this book. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. You know, I've read some interviews with her. She did not like, I don't think, working with Gary Oldman. I think that that was like part of it too. And what, you know, I love that version in a lot of ways. I love Sadie Frost as Lucy. I think she's by far the best version of Lucy ever in, in film. And So there are things I like about it. One of the things, and I always feel like people get mad at me. I never bought Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder's dynamic. I didn't. A lot of people love it. I did not. Yeah, I didn't. And then when I heard how much she was uncomfortable on the set, and I think they've like buried the hatchet since. I think they're fine now. But at the time, she did not enjoy working with him. And I feel like it shows. And it was so interesting to me that like learning that years later, because I'm like, I never, I never bought their dynamic. And then I was like, oh, it may have been that I was actually seeing kind of a little bit past that as to what was going on, because it was like they they did not apparently get along. And so I was like, yeah, because most of the time, I think Winona has great chemistry with her coach stars I've, yeah. I've never felt that way about anything except that film so yeah it's interesting that you bring that up because it's like yeah that you can I I felt like I could see it even as a kid so it was always like mm, yeah and it is it is like what I'm writing about of like yeah. you know women being controlled by men or feeling even just uncomfortable around yes. men. that is very much you know it informs how women react and then how we read their reactions from there absolutely yeah Well, and I also think, yes, I also think that speaks to like how much, you know, we treasure the fact that even way in that back back then pre me too, you know, you have people like Anthony Hopkins and Keanu who refused to do it. You know, they were emotionally mature. They were not, you know, they, they understood the misogyny of what was being asked of them. And I just think that you know, having that, just trying to have an element of awareness, men, is critical to how yeah. we remember you many years from now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do love how you bring up, because like Keanu, like he seems like he's been consistent throughout his career and everybody's just like, oh, he's just a nice guy. He's just a decent dude to be around. So it's like, that's really the reputation you want to have, right? <laughs> Being somebody that even decades later was like, yeah. Even way before the Me Too movement and anybody ever worried about this getting out into the press, he was just doing the right thing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. And you know how hard, like, it's not hard to just go, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Right? It really isn't that hard. That That's what I always think is so strange. A lot of times to be awful to someone, you have to actually do something, you know, like you could just not do something. You could just be a little bit lazier and be a better person, you know, so yeah. Dracula, it was just so, I'm sure it was a lot of work for him to try to come together in those urns. He could have just relaxed and left Lucy alone. (laughs) Would have left Lucy alone. (laughs) On that note, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really had a wonderful time reading your book and I had such a lovely time chatting with you. Yes. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us today on She Wore Black. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter if you follow the links on our website at SheWoreBlackPodcast.com. We have some great episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by shopping at our online bookstore at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. Every purchase you make through our storefront, be it the books on my lists or any books you find in a search from our front page, will support the cost that goes into show production as well as supporting independent bookstores nationwide. Thanks again for joining us today and happy reading. Mm-hmm.